ZDogMD show. We are live streaming with the legend, the Mac Daddy, the P Daddy, the P Diddy, Paul Offit. P.O., what's up, man? Hello, my brother. <laughs> so good to see you, man. Uh, you've been all over everything and you've been just run burning the thing at both ends, whatever the phrase is. Um, people have so many questions, man. Thanks for carving out a time. We have roughly an hour, so we're going to try to pound through as much misinformation, information, and nuance as we can. Um, let me just throw it right at you right away. So many people are wondering, since you're a pediatrician and a vaccinologist, what is the deal with kids and the Pfizer vaccine now? Between the myocarditis, the question of should we have one or two shots for kids? What's the actual risk for kids? And parents are really kind of in a, in a gray area they can't navigate. Right. So, so um, it is clear that the mRNA-containing vaccines are a rare cause of myocarditis, right? Inflammation of the heart muscle, probably in the vicinity of roughly one per 20,000 vaccines. Now, it, it should, it, it, the good, the, the, that I think myocarditis never sounds good. You can say the word mild myocarditis, but people will see that as a contradiction in terms. I think the good news is that it does appear to be short lived and self resolving without permanent sequelae. So that's good. But then I suspect as time goes on, we're going to see there is a spectrum of this that re ranges from probably asymptomatic myocarditis to more symptomatic myocarditis. But for right now, it looks like a rare and for the most part self-resolving phenomenon. Now I should point out that, that natural infection with SARS-CoV-2 also is a cause of myocarditis. There was a study done that was reported in uh, JAMA looking at uh, hundreds of athletes in the Big Ten Conference who, were, uh, who, were, who were, had COVID, who had symptomatic COVID. And what they found was 2.5% of them had myocarditis. What they did was they did gadolinium enhanced MRIs on everybody and found that 2.5%, roughly one in 40 um, people had myocarditis. So the, you know, whereas myocarditis associated with the vaccine is roughly one per 20,000. So in many ways, there's no avoiding that. Also for children who have BC, the so-called multi-system inflammatory disease, depending on which review you read, between 50 and 75% of those children have myocarditis. So I, I think that, that we'll, well, as we understand the pathogenesis of this, I think it's going to be somewhat similar to the um, myositis or muscle inflammation associated with influenza. In other words, influenza is like SARS-CoV-2, a mucosal infection, meaning virus in the bloodstream or viremia is not an important part of the disease process. Nonetheless, you see myositis. And it's not because the virus reproduces itself in muscle cells, it doesn't for influenza. Rather, what happens is it's a cytokine effect. And I think that's also going to be shown to be true here. Um, but it's, it's, I can see where it's a, little, it's a little scary. But again, the choice not to get a vaccine is not a risk-free choice. Frankly, we now know that the virus itself causes myocarditis. We know that this, this post-infectious inflammatory syndrome is actually a fairly common cause of myocarditis. So it's pick your, it's, it's, it's the, the vaccine is always the safer choice. And, and I'll say this, I think that over the next few years, you're going to have two choices, which is to be vaccinated or be infected. So vaccine is always a better choice. Yeah. So I, I think I agree with the idea that um, anyone who's not vaccinated will ultimately get infected, especially with more infectious variants like Delta and so on. I guess the questions come up with children though, their absolute risk of really harm from COVID. So 4,000 cases of Miss C, um, uh, roughly close to 400 deaths. Is that weight against, you know, again, it's always, myocarditis is always fine until it's your kid that gets the myocarditis, then it becomes like a big deal, right? Even though, you know, again, most, most of the kids get better. Do you still think if you were, you know, if you had a nine year, uh, let's say a, an 11 year old um, 
boy or or 12 year old boy, would you vaccinate that kid? Uh, let's say they have no comorbidities at all on balance, given the current rates of infection and so on in the community and what you see? In a second. I mean, I had an 11 year old boy, he's now a 28 year old boy, but I would, I would have vaccinated him in a second. I think um, you know, if you if you put it in perspective, there is it's the rare medical product that doesn't have a, a serious side effect. I mean, so 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 you said it. There's about 400 deaths from from uh, SARS-CoV-2 in children less than 18 years of age. I mean, how many people die of children die of influenza every year between 75 and 150 for which we have a vaccine? How many children died? Uh, An influenza vaccine is a rare cause of Guillain-Barré syndrome in roughly one per million. Um, if if measles would kill 500 children a year. Measles vaccine prevented that, but measles vaccine also is a rare cause of thrombocytopenia. And, and, um, and in roughly one in 25,000, one in 30,000 people, um, which can we see occasionally in the hospital, kids who come in with you know, petechiae associated with thrombocytopenia. So, so the number of deaths in this, with this virus matches what you see with flu or with, with, uh, with um, measles. And, and, and the rare side effect is also similar. So uh, again, the vaccine is always a better choice. I, I'll tell you, the, the thing that's most compelling to me having rounded at Children's Hospital Philadelphia last winter is, is this multi-system inflammatory disease. It is pretty frightening. I mean, these kids initially present asymptomatically or with mild symptoms that were picked up just serendipitously because they were exposed to a friend or family member, PCR positive. They come back a month later, they're PCR negative. They're, they're not shedding virus anymore. They're antibody positive, and they have high fever with evidence of liver, lung, heart, um, and kidney disease. And, and those kids, I, I will know in time, but I suspect a significant percentage of those kids are going, on, going, going to go on to have symptoms that last longer than two months, meaning the so-called long haulers. Uh, this is a bad virus. I mean, th this this virus is not what it was claimed to be. Coming out of China, it was claimed to be a, a winter respiratory virus like flu, and like flu could cause severe and occasionally fatal pneumonia. This virus causes you to react, it to, causes your immune system to react to the lining of your blood vessels. It causes vasculitis, and because every organ system in your body has a blood supply, every organ system is at risk. And and at long with longer term problems. I mean, you know, this is not flu. Tell, tell me about this idea though. So if you're looking at kids and you understand these are, there are these sort of very scary possibilities that can happen, would we, why, why wouldn't we be able to mitigate some of the very small risk of the vaccine already by giving just a single dose, say of the mRNA Pfizer vaccine as some people have proposed? Right. So, so if you look at the phase one studies, at least for, for the Pfizer vaccine, which in phase one studies were done in those 16 and older. So you did have a 16 to 17 year old age group. Um, the first dose induced virus-specific neutralizing antibodies, but no detectable cellular immunity. The second dose induced virus-specific neutralizing antibodies at a level tenfold greater than the first dose and the presence of, of, uh, of virus-specific cytotoxic T cells, T helper cells. And, and so I think the, the, this is not a one-dose vaccine. I, I think if people choose a single dose, um, I think it puts them at greater risk for having a shorter duration and less complete protection. Now, and now we'll see what happens with the children's studies. I, 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 those, those studies that say the six to 12-year-old are currently being done, hopefully we'll have data by late fall. And hopefully we'll have a vaccine that's in hand by late fall, early winter, because you know, come winter, this is going to be a problem. So, so this is interesting, you know, this idea that you're not really generating the big time cellular immunity without the second dose. How then would a, say a Johnson & Johnson adenovirus vector single shot vaccine generate that? Is it just a whole different mechanism there? Because it does. Because That's it right. does. I mean, a single dose induces 
the level of virus-specific neutralizing antibodies, it's comparable, if not a little less than that, that's induced by that second dose of mRNA-containing vaccine, but you get cellular immunity with that first dose. Interesting. Yeah. And and I wonder how much of that is, again, the vector and doing something interesting, which also has yeah, the right. potential as a class effect since AstraZeneca and, and uh, Johnson & Johnson have this small association, again, with Guillain-Barre. Can you speak anything about what we know about that potential class effect with that particular class of vaccines? And we'll go back to kids. Right. So, so again, a rare phenomenon. It looks like I think the numbers were 100 cases per 12.0 million doses, so one per 128,000 vaccinees. So again, a very rare phenomenon. Mm. And again, you know, you see Gambray syndrome occasionally with flu. There are years when you don't see it at one in a million. Occasionally, you see it at one in a million. Uh, what I'd love to know with Gambray syndrome, which is this ascending paralysis and and often um, self-resolving. But, but sometimes not, and sometimes serious. But I, I'd love to see studies looking to see whether or not this infection also causes Guillain-Barre syndrome, because that wouldn't surprise me. It's interesting, like I've gotten mixed messages on that, you know, from clinicians out in the field who say they have seen Guillain-Barre associated with COVID and others say they that they really haven't seen it, which is interesting. I think it, it needs actual data, but that's a really good question if you're thinking about the mechanism of Guillain-Barre, which may be this molecular mimicry. And that actually speaks to something we'll talk about later, which is these what I call the spike anistas, these uh, folks that are coming online and saying the spike protein is toxic, therefore giving a vaccine that gen has your body make its own spike protein is a terrible idea. Actually, do you wanna quickly talk about that and then we'll come back, I wanna come back to kids and vaccines. Yeah, the, the spike protein is toxic paper. Um, is really to, 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 to think that that in any way makes any statement about human health is wrong. It was a study done in mice. It was a study done giving a, a quantity of vaccine that, that did not have a human equivalent. Um, it was given not by the uh, an intramuscular route. It was given, to, I think, intratracheally. And it, it's, um, it, it, from that study, you can learn nothing. And also remember, you you make antibodies to spike protein when you're naturally infected too. So naturally infected or vaccinated. And those are your two choices. I mean, you'd much rather have an antibody response to a single viral protein than to have a virus that is reproducing in you, unchecked. Let, yeah, let me double down on that. <clears throat> Every single human being who is not vaccinated will eventually get infected with natural coronavirus in whatever variant form. Do you agree with that? You know, there's a paper by John Udell published in P, uh, Public Library of Science, PLOS, that basically made that statement. You're going to have two choices. I, I don't know if people know John Udell, but he's the head of virus research at uh, NIH. And I think he's right. I think that's that's going to be the way it works out. So if he's right, then you're taking a risk with, with everything we do, we have to parse risk. So vaccine has these defined risks that we know. There may be risks we... So here's a question. Why are there not? Why can there not be risks we do not know with vaccine? How likely is it pretest wise that this vaccine has a long term effect on sterility, autoimmunity, et cetera, that people have been proposing online without data sources or precedent? Uh, why? Tell, tell me about that. How, why? How do you think about that? Well, so I mean, we're still waiting for that first vaccine that's shown to have a serious, permanent, or even fatal side effect beyond two months after the last dose is given. It hasn't happened. 
I mean, now, now, I mean, smallpox can cause pericarditis, smallpox vaccine can cause pericarditis or myocarditis. Um, flu vaccine can cause Guillain-Barre syndrome. That, sw- that swine flu vaccine that was used in Europe, Pandemrix, in 2009, was found to be a rare cause of narcolepsy, which is a permanent disorder of wakefulness, all noticed within the first month after the vaccine. Rotavirus vaccine is a rare cause of intussusception, which is intestinal blockage, which occurs within a couple of weeks of getting the vaccine. Measles vaccine can cause thrombocytopenia, lowering of the play that can all within two weeks the vaccine. So there exists yet, not in the past 200 years, an example of a vaccine causing long-term side effects. Um, and, and I should, in, in a more rational world, we would be um, um, happy about the fact that these very, very rare adverse events are being picked up. I mean, Guillain-Barre syndrome in one per 128,000 people, myocarditis in one in, in uh, 20,000 people. The clotting syndrome is associated with the, the J&J or AstraZeneca vaccines. And it means severe clotting problems in, in one in 500,000 people. Remember, roughly 16% of people with COVID will have some evidence of clotting problems. I mean, the virus is worse and the vaccines are not perfect. I mean, there always is at some level, a small price to pay for uh, for protection against this these viruses in this war against the virus. I mean, in this war against the virus, you know, there's um, it's rough. So let, let's um, dig into that little a little bit because if the dichotomy is get the virus and run those risks, or get the vaccine and run what we presume are smaller risks. And actually, I want to make one point on that. People seem to say, "Oh, the vaccine then on mass is going to cause." potentially a lot more cases of side effects just because you're giving it to so many people than the natural COVID is causing now. Well, people don't realize the reason that dichotomy exists is that the natural COVID occurring now is so suppressed by the vaccine. If you just allowed COVID to do its thing, the havoc numerically would be vastly higher than any side effect of vaccine given to everybody equivalent in amounts, correct? Absolutely. I mean, I find the, the argument, and it's often an argument made with any vaccine that comes out, you know, we don't know enough. We don't, we don't have 10 years of data. We don't have 30 years of data. We have never tested this vaccine in a closed container underwater, you know, whatever it is. And it's always just that we never quite know enough. And, and the fact of the matter is, you never know everything. The question is, when do you know enough to say that the vaccine is much more likely to do good than harm? And that's and then you pull the trigger, and that's what happened here. And then you find out that you have these very, very rare side effects. That that should make people realize that 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 was the right choice moving forward because the side effects are far, far less frequent than the than the the benefits of getting the vaccine. So good. So now pulling it. That's exactly how I think about it too, but let's pull it back into the dichotomy of infection versus vaccine. So what if then you're not in that dichotomy, you've been infected with COVID, maybe you had an asymptomatic case, maybe you had an ICU level case, and now they're asking you, well, would you like to get the vaccine? And let's say we'll do it for two groups. Let's do it for kids and adults. How do you think about that in terms of immunity and and risk benefit? No, it's a good question. I think when, when the vaccine virus, when the virus first came into the United States and started killing people in March, people who are in the vaccine world were looking for one thing and one thing only. Does natural infection protect you against relatively severe disease associated with re-exposure? Um, because then you knew you could make a vaccine. Then you knew all you had to do was mimic the immunity induced by natural infection to protect. And it's not true. There are, we've talked about this before, there are um, instances in the in the world of, of uh of um, microbiology where a natural infection doesn't protect. I mean, you can get group A beta hemolytic strep, strep throat again and again, you can gonorrhea again and again. So, so that's why it's so hard to make 
vaccines to protect those pathogens. But here it looked like it did protect, and it does. You know, I, I, I think that one could reasonably make the argument, if you've been naturally infected, I think you very likely are protected against severe critical disease, meaning the kind of diseases that cause you to be hospitalized. I think that's true. I think that, that the reason that, that I think when we launched this vaccine program in the United States, we didn't say everybody who's been naturally infected is probably protected, you don't need a vaccine, was probably for more bureaucratic reasons than anything else, because now you have to test everybody to see whether or not they've been previously infected. It added another layer to an already complicated program. And so that wasn't done. And, and frankly, in, in, in the scheme of things, if you've been naturally infected and you get a dose of mRNA vaccine, and there's now a few studies that have shown this, you act as if you've got your second dose. You know what I'm saying? You get a clear booster response. So I think you probably only need one dose of an mRNA vaccine, but there's no downside. I mean, it's safe and it induces, um, it, it, it boosts your immunity and probably gives you longer lasting. So, okay, that, that, I'm going to clip that out and release that as a separate clip because people that is on the top of everybody's mind. There's a lot of I think there's a lot of distrust of the public health community when natural immunity is denied, even though you know there's reasonable evidence that it's real. And I think it, it you get the perception in the public that pharmaceuticals and government are pushing a vaccine on people even who don't necessarily need it. But as you said, it was bureaucratically complicated in the beginning. But now we can have these discussions. Like let's say a kid has had COVID. Do they need two doses of Pfizer when the myocarditis risk, which is already quite small, seems to be increased with that second dose? Would you say that that's a reasonable way to think about it? Or do you think it's too complicated to think of it that way? Well, I, th I think it's, it's well, again, you like to see studies in children with who've been naturally infected who then get a single dose. But, yeah. but I, if, if it is similar to what you've seen now in, in older children or young adults, then you could make a case for a single dose. You could, but again, uh, we await data. I really wish that we could come up with a term different than natural immunity. I mean, the term natural, it just sounds good. Realize that the price you pay for natural immunity is more than 600,000 people have died from this infection. It's mother nature has just, she has a great PR team. I don't know who her PR team, because she has been trying to kill us ever since we crawled out of the ocean on the land. Bro, uh, Buffett, you know, are you, do you eat organic? Because natural COVID is way organic. There's carbon, lots of carbon in it. Uh, as, as you know, th see that's, that's, I love it when you say nature has a great, <laughs> has a great PR agent. So much of what we're seeing now is bad, bad PR. Scientists are, by default, not great communicators. You wrote a book about this. You're one of the rare exceptions where you can actually speak scientifically and still be quite persuasive. But but into the void come people that sort of prey on these sort of tendencies. So the idea of, of, of you've been infected with COVID, you have some immunity, I think that's important for people to understand that that, that is, it's helpful immunity. Do you think it's on a spectrum based on the inoculum and the severity of disease? We don't really know, but what, what's your intuition? Like asymptomatic versus ICU? Hard to know. I mean, there's so many other multi other factors that play into that in terms of age and, and other comorbidities, et cetera. Um, I am encouraged, though, by the, the recent paper in Nature looking at the presence of memory plasma cells in the bone marrow of people who are naturally infected. And it, it suggests that, that, you know, that we would be those who are naturally infected would be protected, would be protected for a fairly long period of time. My feeling on this, though, is that um, there's no downside to getting a booster dose. Um, I think it's safe, and it's. It, it, I think it, it clearly has been shown to bump immunity and probably create longer-lived immunity. So I, I agree. I don't think there's downside to that. Um, one question, though, from a resource allocation standpoint, right now we're drowning in vaccine in the U.S., but there's a bigger picture question since the globe is interconnected. We have a Delta variant that originated in un, unmitigated replication in India. Um, 
Should we not be focusing on children that are in the pantheon of things lower risk than adults? Should we be focusing on get every adult as we can in the US vaccinated and then give that vaccine to countries that need it? Or are there logistical and other considerations with that? Well, I mean, you're right. I mean, we're throwing away vaccine as it expires. It's really criminal. And, and you know, you have countries like India that are desperate for a vaccine. Um, I, I do think, though, maybe this is my bias of working in a children's hospital. It is hard to watch children suffer this disease. And if we can prevent it safely, and I think we can, then I think we should prevent it. Also, we do need to stop this virus from reproducing itself. And the only way to do that is to have a critical percentage of the population vaccinated. Although I think the number one reason to vaccinate children is to protect them from suffering and hospitalization and occasional death. The second reason is that they are whatever, 20% of the herd. And we need to, to get a level of herd immunity that we are not close to. I mean, we're like at roughly a little less than 50% of the population vaccinated. I mean, this, this virus has a, an R naught, a contagiousness index of six, I mean, if you do the, 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 there's a formula for what percentage of the population needs to be vaccinated in order to protect. It's so-called R0 minus one over R0. So that would be six minus one over six divided by the efficacy of the vaccine. So obviously the more contagious the virus is, the higher the pop percentage of the population needs to be vaccinated. The higher the, the, the efficacy of the vaccine, the, the lower the percentage of the population is vaccinated. But assume 90% well, let's assume a 90% effective vaccine, which is, an, uh, which is generous because we really mean effective against shedding um, and assume an R0 of six, you're going to need at least 90% of the population to be vaccinated or naturally infected. I think e either. Now, 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 see, the way the public hears that, I, and I agree, I think that's the correct math. The way the public hears that is, oh, they keep moving the goalposts, right? It, it was 60, 70, 80. But what people need to understand is that R0 is not a static number either. As the virus changes, gets more um, uh, contagious, like Delta, say, R0 increases, vaccine efficacy may actually mildly decrease over time and then also due to variations in virus. So it's a complex dynamic in terms of what is technically herd immunity. But here's a question, Paul, like do, and you can correct anything I said, but do you think we need to reach 90% to have enough comfort with living with this virus? Because this virus is not going away. Right. And so there's a lot of variables there too. I mean, how long does immunity last? I mean, and, and knowing that there's 195 countries in this world, many of which have not given a single dose of vaccine, this virus is going to continue to circulate. And so we're going to need to have a highly um, protected population for years. So it's the same thing with with polio. I mean, we eliminated polio in this country in the late 70s, but it still exists in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And so we still vaccinate our children. Um, I, I think that we, we have to find a way to to vaccinate people who are choosing not to vaccinate. And I, I maybe I'm just incredibly pessimistic, but we've tried, right? I mean, we solved the problem of how to make it. We solved the problem of how to mass produce it. We've solved the problem of how to mass administer it, which was not easy. You gotta give credit to the Biden administration for setting that up. Um, we've done everything we can, I think, to, to educate, to try and decrease misinformation, although I think we could do more there. Um, you know, to to uh, to the nudge principle, meaning you know you get a uh, you know you win a lottery, or you get a free beer if you go to the Phillies games, which by the way is the only way you can watch the Phillies game is just a little buzz. But that's another issue. Um, and so we've done all that, and, and and you've tried to address access issues. Then what? What do you do if sixty or seventy or eighty million people in this country say? No, thanks. I'm going to continue to allow this virus to reproduce itself, continue to allow people to suffer and be hospitalized and die, and continue to allow variants to be made, which, which, are, which may become progressively more resistant to vaccine-induced immunity. What do you do then? And I think the answer to that question is you compel vaccination. 
you mandate vaccines. I mean, this is the struggle that our hospital is going through right now about mandating the vaccine. The Penn Health System has mandated vaccines. Um, our hospital hasn't done it yet, but I think we're on the verge of doing that because we owe it to that. We owe it to our staff. We owe it to our the patients we're taking care of. We're heading into winter months soon, late fall, winter months when this virus will flourish more than it is now. You have children who don't, for whom there's not a vaccine yet. I mean, I just think pediatric hospitals have been fairly slow to uh, to mandate these vaccines. Yeah. You know, my the libertarian in me just hates the idea of the the mandate for, you know, under emergency use and all of that. But there, oh man, there's a lot of questions here. Um, you know, let me give you one one example. Yeah. Well, why? Unfortunately, people occasionally need to be compelled to do the right thing. I mean, people say, you know, as just I just was watching one of the Republican governors from Indiana talking about, or no, maybe it's a congressman from Indiana who said, you know, I respect personal choice. What is he talking about? I mean, it's it's a friend of mine told me recently that she has a relative who uh, a man who um, chose not to get a, a COVID vaccine. So he gets COVID. He then proceeds to infect his pregnant wife, who, because she's pregnant and is increased risk of disease, gets admitted to the hospital. Then she gets admitted to the ICU. Then she gets put on a ventilator where she proceeds to deliver her baby prematurely. So he didn't just make a decision for himself. He made a decision for his wife and for his unborn child. These aren't personal decisions. I mean, my decision of whether to get a tetanus vaccine, that's a personal decision because no one's going to catch tetanus for me. But that's not true here. It's not a personal decision. So I really wish we would scrap that. And, and Mississippi, to me, is the best example of this, right? Mississippi has like a vaccination rate in the low 30 percent, right? They're one of the worst states out there. What's the answer to the question? What state in the union has the highest rate of vaccines for children? Answer, Mississippi, 99 percent. Why? Because they have a state mandate, as every state has. But what they don't have that most states have is they don't have a religious exemption. They don't have a philosophical exemption. If you go to, to public school in Mississippi, your child goes to public school in Mississippi, they have to be vaccinated unless you want to homeschool. So, mm. so therefore, sometimes you just have to compel people to do the right thing. It's a sad thing. I mean, I buy the libertarian argument. I, I actually do. I think that people will, will if they're informed, they will make the best decision for themselves, which will then be the best decision for the science. The question is, I'm sorry, for society. The question is, how do people get informed? Mm. And, and, and occasionally they get informed in a manner where they get bad information that causes them to make bad decisions that put them and others at risk. And then what do you do? Man, these are the existential questions of our time, really, Paul. I mean, let, let, actually, let's dive into that a little bit from a slightly different angle. And this will get to another question, which is why as a vaccinated person, should I worry about unvaccinated people now? And this is a common like anti-vaxxer question, but let's talk about it in the context of COVID. So the vaccines are quite efficacious and we should talk about the Israeli data and how it's misused sometimes, right? In terms of vaccine failure. Let's talk about breakthrough. So wh why should I care if Billy Bob, who's not had COVID, doesn't get vaccinated, gets Delta, and I'm vaccinated, why do I care? You know, Is he really gonna harm me and my family, assuming we're all vaccinated with both doses of whatever? Right. So you you and I were vaccinated essentially to protect against the D614G variant or the original Wuhan virus, the 2019 Wuhan virus. Um, that That's what we're protected against. Um, the, the next variant, the alpha variant, is also we're highly protected against that variant. We're protected against severe critical disease associated with the Delta variant, but not as well against asymptomatic or mild or low moderate disease. This has only been a year and a half. This is variant three. I think you can assume there are other variants to come. 
And, and as this virus continues to mutate and continues to try and adapt itself to the human population, it could get to the point where it, it, it is becoming more and more resistant to vaccine-induced immunity. So what Billy Bob does, does matter to you. Yeah. It was Billy Bob, right? Wasn't that his name? Yeah, I, you know, I just picked a random name. You know, I grew up in the Central Valley of California. I knew a few Billy Bobs. Um, I might've been a Billy Bob. I might still yeah. be a Billy Bob. It's all, everything's connected, right? I guess one of the questions then though, that I think vaccine opponents who people are saying, well, why I don't even wanna get this vaccine because it doesn't even work. So they'll look at the Israeli data and say, look now, Israel has what 80 some odd percent of adults fully vaccinated. Why are they now getting increasing cases and what's the deal there? How do you think about that? Because I think this is a very commonly misinterpreted data set. Right, so, so this is a mucosal virus, like rotavirus, like influenza virus, meaning a virus spread into the bloodstream is not part of the disease process. As a general rule for mucosal viruses, you can protect well against severe disease, moderate to severe to critical disease. It's much more difficult to prevent mild illness or asymptomatic illness. I don't consider those breakthroughs. The virus is doing, the vaccine, sorry, is doing what it's supposed to do. I mean, 97% of people who are hospitalized with this virus are unvaccinated. 99.5% of people who are dying from this virus are unvaccinated. The vaccine is doing what it's supposed to do. It's, it's not going to be great at protecting against asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection, which is true of all vaccines, all, all mucosal vaccines. I mean, this is, measles is different. Measles is a, a their, their virus spread in the bloodstream is an important part of the disease process. With a measles vaccine, you can get sterilizing immunity, meaning that virus bounces off you. It doesn't cause any manner of disease illness, including asymptomatic infection. That's not this vaccine. Right, and in, in Israel, they're saying, well, okay, what they're measuring now for efficacy against mild infection, asymptomatic infections, it was 67% with Delta, which is lower than in the clinical trials against the wild type, you know, the strain that you mentioned. but they're still looking at severe disease, hospitalization, death. It's still super 90% efficacy. 93%, great. So what, what else do you want? Because we, I don't mind getting a cold or a flu. I do mind ending up in the unit, having long COVID, all these other things that might come with that or blood clots, et cetera. So it seems to me that the so far the vaccine is still quite efficacious, even in the setting of Delta. So another reason to get it. Now, other I'm seeing some comments here. People are saying, listen, why should I be forced, compelled, mandated to get a vaccine when I've gotten natural COVID or COVID? Well, I think that's fair. Yeah. I think, I think that's fair. I, I think if you've been naturally infected, it is reasonable that you could say, look, I, I believe I am protected based on these studies that show that I um, have you know, high frequencies of memory plasma blasts in my bone marrow. I'm, I'm good. I think that's a reasonable argument. I do. That, so, so heaven forbid we have nuance in our in our policymaking. You know, that, how how would you measure that, Paul? Like, how would you confirm that? Would you do antibody testing? How would you do that? Yeah, so so antibodies antibodies against a nuclear protein, right? Which is not going to be something you would have if you got a vaccine. So you get the vaccine, you'll get antibody response to the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, but you won't get an antibody response to other. There's, there's four proteins to this virus, so you wouldn't get an antibody response to the nuclear protein. That's how you do. And they're commercially available tests to distinguish this. Yes, yes, they are. Every time I talk to you, I learn something that just makes me go, oh, because that, 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 I get that question a lot. And the idea that you can distinguish between vaccine and, and it's like many, it's actually like hepatitis, right? Hepatitis B is a similar idea. There's different antigens you can right. test. So that, that's brilliant. So I like that idea of uh, really uh, res respecting somebody who's been through the, you know, the COVID mill. Again, the question is, would a single dose 
of an mRNA vaccine act as a booster and be necessary, or would it just be a nice to have? You know, it would just help. I mean, it, there's no downside to that, and all it does is, is, is boost your immunity, probably give you longer lasting and more complete protection. So it's a good thing. But again, I could see that. I mean, that doesn't bother me. There, there's, it's, it's, it's stated that there's 34 million people who've been infected in the United States, something like that. But that's just people who've been tested and found to be infected. When they do antibody surveillance data, it's probably close to 100 million. So you're already talking about. 30% or so of the population has already been naturally infected. Then you have people who've been vaccinated, but remember many people who've been, or a certain percentage, maybe 30% of people who've been vaccinated all, were also naturally infected. So there was overlap between those two groups. So maybe you have 60, 65% population immunity right now, if you consider natural infection plus uh, vaccination, but we do need to get higher than that. I, we, we do. I mean, it's not, to me, it is shocking that this virus is, is still raging in the summer months. I mean, it is a winter virus. I mean, if you look at, you know, and it's, we're certainly better than we were last summer. Last summer would be 500 to a thousand deaths a day. We're a little lower than that because there's been, immunity from natural infection, there's been immunity from vaccination, but really raging in the summer months, this does not bode well. And it tells you everything you need to know about the Delta variant, that it, that it can do this in the, in the summer tells you that you should fear the winter. Fear the winter because what's going to happen is when kids go back to school now, and this is another reason for why I think kids need to be vaccinated. When kids go back to school this, this uh, um, fall, I don't think they're going to be as good as we were last fall about masking and social distancing. I don't. You're already seeing you know, states that are bask, banning mask mandates. And I, I just think we're, we're going to be worse off because you're going to have a vulnerable population of, of children who are not vaccinated, who are not going to, we're not going to be doing the personal protective stuff that we did uh, last, last um, uh, um, school year. And I think it's going to be a problem. It'd be really nice not to have to do that since I'm not sure there's great data beyond ideas around precautionary principle that masking young kids is helpful. Or have you seen that data? It's a general rule. Usually, the school outbreaks tend to mimic what goes on in the community. If, if you're in, in a community where the, the uh, disease rate is low, you're usually well. You know, there was you probably don't remember this study. There was a study done. This this is going to sound counterintuitive, but it's not. There was a study done in the Netherlands, 1999-2000, with measles, trying to answer the question: Who was most likely to get measles? Obviously, you were least likely to get measles if you were vaccinated, living in a highly vaccinated population. You were most likely to get measles if you were unvaccinated, living in a highly unvaccinated population. But you were actually more likely to get measles if you were unvaccinated, if you were vaccinated, living in a highly unvaccinated population, than if you were um, uh, unvaccinated, living in a highly vaccinated. But in other words, you're, you're more likely to get it if the virus is more likely to get to you, which is going to be too, true if you're surrounded by people who are unvaccinated. Do you think that's the rationale for, say, LA? Uh, mandating masks again? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're having big community outbreaks. Mm. And so that's why I feel, you know, first of all, I just think going back to school, the notion of just having children who've gotten vaccinated, you know, don't, don't need to wear a mask, forget it. I'm just going to be hard enough to figure that out. So I just think mask mandates when you go back to school till this settles down. And it's going to really depend on the community to some extent, too. Mm, yeah, I, mean, I, I really do think I think vaccines should be mandated for school entry. I do. I mean, Penn mandates it. Good for them. Indiana University now has mandated. It was challenged in court and it, it failed in state supreme court. So that they are able to do that. Can, good. But can that can that be done under EUA? When will these things be formally yes. FDA? Yes. Yes, going to be done under it's being done under EUA. There's nothing legally that says you can't mandate something that's been approved under EUA. Uh, you know, it's it's. I wish we had a different term because the term emergency use authorization technically means that these companies are allowed to distribute an investigational new drug. That's what that means. I mean, this is not an investigation new drug. It's been 300 million plus doses are out there. You have an enormous safety and efficacy profile. 
Um, it'll be licensed when we have six months of efficacy data, which are already in hand. But the other thing, the difference, and I think most people don't realize, but the difference between a licensed product and an approved product is, is also something that the FDA calls CMC, which is one of those awkward acronym, acronyms that only federal agencies can come up with. And even when you know what the acronym say, says, it still doesn't make sense. Chemical manufacturing control. That's what that means. So what that means is that when you when you make a vaccine, you you have to, or any biological, you have to, you the, the FDA not only licenses the product, they also have to license the process and license the building because they have to make sure that, the, uh, that they have consistency lots, that every lot you make is exactly the same as the previous lot. So you have to validate every step of that process. And it is grueling. I mean, you know, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that created the rotavirus vaccine. That validation process was a one year long process. Mm -hmm. Now, I think they're expediting that because they realize like we're in a pandemic, but um, it's hard to do all that. Well, it's essentially because they were able to catch that goof up with Johnson and Johnson at that manufacturing facility back east, yeah. Yep. <clears throat> Even under this EUA. Now, speaking of that, so Johnson and Johnson, um, what's your take on that strategy? Now, it doesn't look like it's really t had a lot of uptake after the pause and everything in the U.S. No, I mean its advantage was it was a single dose vaccine. Um, the the and so there were certain populations for whom it was of value. You know, a homebound population, a very transient population. You could argue for that. Um, but it had hit number one, you know, with thrombotic thrombocyte, thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome. And then it gets hit number two with Guillain-Barre. I just think it's been hard for that vaccine to get out there. Mm. And relating to that, Novavax, when is that coming down the pipeline and what's the advantage there? I, I don't know. Mm. I mean, well, it's, it's, it's a, a purified protein vaccine. So right. um, it's something people are more used to. I mean, so, so it, the difference here is that um, you know, with hepatitis B vaccine or the human papillomavirus vaccine, you give the protein, you give the surface protein of the virus, and then you make an immune response to that surface protein. Here, with the mRNA vaccines or the vector virus vaccines, you give the gene that codes for the protein. So you make the protein and you make the antibody. So we're more familiar with that kind of strategy. It's an adjuvanted single protein vaccine. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm on the FDA's vaccine advisory committee, and we've been asked to set aside a number of dates um, in case this comes up. But what ends up happening is they set aside like five, six dates. And then as we get closer and they realize it's not going to be submitted by then, then we eliminate the dates. I see, I see, I see. Okay, so that's, but that's still probably coming down the pipeline at some point as a different. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And, and, and the more the merrier. I think the, the, you know, people would argue, well, we have a glut of vaccines now. I mean, we're throwing away vaccines now. My feeling on this is that the more you learn about that, these vaccines, especially as the, the variants continue to raise their head in terms of uh, ability to protect against variants, in terms of ability to have uh, protection against all manner of illness, in terms of ability to protect for people with different comorbidities, in terms of length of protection, the more the merrier. Get, get as many vaccines out there that you can learn about as possible. Mm. Yeah, you know, I, it, it's it's a real struggle. I've had a group of different people on the show to kind of talking about everybody is for vaccines, Vac vaccinate as many people as you can. And I have a diversity of opinions, whether it's Marty, Marty McCary, Vinay Prasad, people who've taken very heterodox stances on say, the two shot regimen for kids or previous immunity being very helpful or ma masking and the lack of evidence thereof versus other interventions, et cetera. But to a one, they all agree that the vaccine is remarkably effective and ought to be given to every, at least every vulnerable adult or every adult. But going back to kids, so I've had a few questions now in the comments. Asthma, is that considered a comorbidity for kids that puts them at higher risk of COVID complications? It is. Uh, any sort of chronic 
respiratory disease is considered a comorbidity. Including run-of-the-mill, you know, childhood asthma. Yeah. Okay, that, that's I mean, good to know. Because people ask, they very much ask that question. The other thing that comes up a lot is the idea of boosters and how unsettling that is for a population that is very distrustful of industry, government, and pharma during the pandemic. And that's a significant part of the population. Um, how do you think about this when the CEO of Pfizer comes out and says, hey, maybe we need a booster for this, or we're gonna need, likely need a booster for, uh, for this in the fall? Yeah, I didn't like that. I didn't like it that the CEO of Pfizer says that we're gonna need a booster a year after we gave the initial vaccine. First of all, all the data, if anything, argues against that. Um, secondly, he's, he works for a pharmaceutical company, not a public health agency. Right. Let the public health agencies make those comments. Yeah, I agree. That was very unsettling. Well, I mean, what what are the criteria for booster? Are you looking at immunological data? Are you looking at clinical data? How do you, how would you decide that? Clinical data. I, I think right now you have three percent of people who are um, vaccinated who are being hospitalized, and 05 percent of people who are vaccinated are being killed. As those numbers start to rise, five percent, ten percent, fifteen percent, then I think we're going to have to consider a booster dose. But for right now, the numbers look good, and I, I do think again, you're you're Longer term protection is much easier regarding severe critical disease. So I, I'm going to make a prediction that I think it would be a few years, really, before we needed a booster. But we'll see. Wow. Okay. I'm going to quote you on that. I like that. Um, that's that's my instinct as well. Just understanding what a little I know about it from talking to smart people is that this is not something that happens right away. And by the way, we've talked about this before, but I think it wor it's worth readdressing if you don't mind. Um, how is it? that companies and scientists determine the efficacy of vaccine against new variants? Is it, is it all these neutralizing antibody assays? Is there something else? Is there clinical data? Is it a mix? Help us understand that. Right, so, you, so, well, so, so there are, there's much published now regarding um, the neutralizing antibody response against the original virus or the alpha virus and now the delta virus, virus based on people who've been naturally infected. And you can see that there is a lesser quantity or, or a lesser level of virus-specific neutralizing antibodies as we move now to the Delta variant. But the, the critical thing, again, that, 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 that is or is not going to be able to predict what you see clinically. What you see now, and that should be really reassuring to people, is probably 80% of the circulating strains are Delta variant. Nonetheless, still, 99.5% of people who are killed are unvaccinated and 97% of people who are hospitalized. I mean, if, if that wasn't, if, if the if we weren't getting adequate protection from either natural infection or vaccination as the Delta variant started to rise, and you should have seen those numbers change dramatically and they didn't. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. And kind of relating to that, maybe we should do a quick lightning round on misinformation and countering some of it very specifically. So the idea that this vaccine, and we've addressed this partially, but this vaccine will cause long-term effects like sterility, fertility problems. How do you talk to patients and, and, and parents about this? Right, so that misconception was born of this, this letter that was written by two researchers to the European Medicines Agency, the EMA, claiming that the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, which is what you're making an antibody response against when you get a vaccine, mimics a protein on the surface of placental cells called syncytion one. So that therefore, by their analysis, as you made an antibody response to SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, you were also inadvertently making an antibody response to a protein on the surface of placental cells that's responsible for placental cell health. There were a couple problems with that. First of all, those two proteins aren't similar. 
I mean, to say that they had similar sequences, it's like saying you and I have the same social security number because they both contain the number five. So that was wrong. Secondly, if you look at the clinical trials, the phase three trials for the mRNA vaccines, there were, there were three dozen pregnancies and that was a placebo controlled trial. If it was true that fertility was affected by vaccination, then those pregnancies should have been more represented in the, uh, in the placebo group, but they weren't. It was 18 and 18. So therefore the vaccine neither enhanced nor negatively affected um, fertility. Also, remember, 100 million people were just infected last year. Um, and while they were infected, they were making an antibody response to the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. So the question is, what happened to the birth rate? Stayed about the same. Utter nonsense. But nonetheless, as is true with all these, this, these, these crazy notions, um, it's hard to unring the bell. You can be as logical as you want, as clear as you want, but people have heard that, and it's hard to make them unhear it. Yeah, agree. And once it's heard, yeah, you cannot un unwind it without a lot, a lot, a lot of work. Um, so relating to that, another piece, and I, actually, I, I do want to ask this question. Someone in Super Chat on YouTube, TPS says, hey, I'm upset by pressure to vaccinate little kids like three to 10 years old if the risk benefit isn't there. First of all, what's the horizon for that even being a possibility? And second of all, how would you think about that age group? Remember, we do have school vaccine mandates. It's not like you know we're 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 just entering the birth of vaccine mandates for children. I mean, we have vaccine mandates for children and a half since the 1970s. So this is not novel territory. Um, you could argue that the the school the vaccines for which we do mandate in school that many of those diseases pale in comparison to this one. So um, it's not a crazy notion when it, it, usually when um, the reason that, that, the, that the, the school mandates was because that's often where these viruses were transmitted, especially measles. And that, that's the first mandates really were measles vaccines. So mm. um, I, I get that. I mean, it's really hard to say you, you have to give your three-year-old a vaccine. I get that. But I, I think that it, as if we generate the kind of data that should make people feel comfortable that the vaccine is safe and effective in a better world, they would rush to vaccinate their child. I mean, that's the, the emails that I get these days are like, when is this vaccine going to be available for the six to 11-year-old? I feel my child is vulnerable. We're heading into the winter months. I'm worried that I'm in a state that, that doesn't allow a mask mandate. I think my child is at risk. And they're right. Their child is at risk. And, and the degree to which they become at lesser risk is the degree to which we enforce mandates for vaccination. I, 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 I just wish we had a different word than mandate. Maybe we call it good health requirements, something that made people feel they weren't being compelled. Yeah, I think a lot of this has to do with our own sort of, uh, you know, kind of moral flavors on mandated things and so on. And, and you know, it's weird because, you know, as, as in the scientific community, it's quite there's a general consensus that's quite clear. These things really do work. Even if kids are at lower risk, the risk of vaccine is very small and the risk of infection is not zero. At the same time, I think, you know, parents do also like to feel like they have the capacity and education to make the decisions. The trick is we have to give them that education. So how about we go back into misinformation for a second? So there's a guy, Gert von den Boscha. Have you heard about this guy? Yeah, so apparently a virologist in Europe has his premise, and you can maybe uh, explain it better than me, is that, oh, you know, by by vaccinating during a pandemic, we're putting pressure on the virus to emerge vaccine escape variants and that we've primed our immune system. Therefore, follow-up vaccines won't be very effective. Uh, something along those lines, um, to paraphrase. Am, am I paraphrasing that right? And what do you think about this? Because it oh, has a grip on the public, this idea. Uh, I just, I, I, with what evidence? I mean, you have, for example, 
what can I have to say? So you have measles, for example. We've had a measles vaccine since the early 1960s. Measles is like, like this virus, a single-stranded RNA virus. Measles, like this virus, does mutate. Nonetheless, despite 60 years of measles vaccine, we have not seen strains generated that resist, um, that resist immunity from vaccination. I mean, flu is different. Flu mutates on a daily basis. I mean, that, that virus is a moving target. This virus also mutates, but much slower than, say, influenza does. We'll see. I mean, you know, it's like, I mean, the notion that we're, we're that, that you know, you're creating a, a you're, you're, you've created a population either from natural infection or immunization that is likely to have several years of, of protection. That's a good thing. Uh, and, and although this virus may mutate to the point that it escapes recognition by current immunity from vaccination or immunization, then you come up with a second generation vaccine. That, that's what you do. I, I don't think that's going to happen, actually. I think that the viruses, there's probably been already about 12,000 mutations on this virus already. I mean, it's, and, and I think you, you may get to the point if they're resisting all immunity, or meaning, meaning that you're, it's as if you never got a vaccine, you never got naturally infected. I think that's probably a lethal mutation. Yeah. So in other words, you're kind of running the runway out on the virus's ability to change itself. Right. Yeah. Lethal to the virus, not lethal. To That's right. Virus. Lethal to the virus. Right. Um, and, and so within that parameter, then I think, again, it's another compelling reason to just go and get vaccinated now. Um, you know, well, you know, we're going to need a booster and all this, get vaccinated and see, because if you're even preventing severe disease, hospitalization, death, that's all we really care about to prevent our ICs from filling up, to prevent morbidity, mortality, and that sort of thing. And uh, and as much of the, especially the adult population that we can get vaccinated as quickly as we can when we're throwing vaccine away, um, it, it seems like a moral imperative now that we really try to educate as much as we can. And, you know, Paul, I mean, like you've written books on science communication. Like I find the audience that reaches out to me that has skepticism about this vaccine is a very different audience that has skept than that that has sort of more chronic delusional skepticism about childhood vaccines and that sort of thing. And I think we have to really be quite open to understanding and, and parsing that because even when they hear, oh, well, I think, you know, a vaccine mandate's a good idea, you know, what they hear is you're taking away my choice with an experimental vaccine and so on. And you can talk and sit with them, but it almost requires that relationship. And it's very hard to build that online. I mean, I struggle with that. Have you, what, what's your take on that? I think, I think you should be skeptical of anything you put into your body, including vaccines. I mean, when I was asked like last October before we saw the data, you know, for in December with those the first two mRNA vaccines, you know, would you get a, a COVID-19 vaccine? I said, not until I see the data. Yeah. And, and, and I, so I think that's fair. And I think you should, you should, you should look carefully to see whether or not um, th this is reassuring. Now, what happens though is that it's when you don't believe the data that you then you move from skepticism to cynicism, and there is no medicine for that. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah, that almost requires teaching critical thinking and recognizing bias and logical fallacies. What I like about your conversation, and I got to let you go in like a couple minutes because you got to go on to CNN and do a thing. I got to get dressed up for CNN. See, oh, yeah. It doesn't matter what I look like on your show, <laughs> you know, but I get back in time for that show. That's the thing, man. So I do. How does it work? Is it all live with CNN? Yeah. yeah. Man, so they put the little earbug in and you. No, 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 no. I just do it just like I'm doing this. Wow. That, like, except that's... I'm dressed up because obviously that show matters. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, my audience is going to trust uh, trust this show more than CNN. They think it's too biased. You, you, we really got to we got to get you on as much as we can because uh, it, it's it's just a it's a joy. Um, man, will you so. 
you're my go-to when I think something happens, there's a problem in the news, we hear another you know, potential side effect of whatever is Johnson & Johnson, and you're always very candid with me in a way that says that you, you really, people who talk about, oh, well, there's all this pharma influence and all that, yeah, except when you're really trying to look at data. And you have your biases, which is what I love. You laid it out, you said, listen, I see kids in a major academic institution. Of course I'm biased towards keeping kids safe because I see it when, what happens when they're not kept safe. So that's very important because I know you'll see in comments and stuff, you know, you know, criticism, like already Brian Major says, lost credibility, got to get dressed up for fake news CNN. So you see, there's always going to be, <laughs> you know, and it's funny, I had Marty McCary in here and right after he did my show, he got on Fox News because he's on Fox a lot. And people were like, that's Fox News. So it's like, you can't win, right? But you have to get out there and you have to communicate and you have to do the best you can with your experience. That's right. And I, I, I think CNN tends to, be sort of hanging crepe all the time. I, I agree with that. But you know, but you 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 but people do watch it. I mean, you're trying to get good information out there, however you can. And by the way, for people who don't know what that term means, it's a term in medicine where we say you're, you, they're always doom and gloom and trying to prepare you for disaster. And uh, that can be psychologically damaging, I think, to the population to the point where they backlash. You know, and I think uh, that's why I just stopped looking at Twitter because it's just ugh, you just want to slap a, a virtual account. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul, I'm really going to respect, respect your time. There's a billion comments. We'll summarize them. I think we asked the big questions, but we may go deeper in another episode if you're game to come back on. No, I'd love to come back. That would be fun. Thank I you. love it. Brother, I thank you. I enjoy this more than CNN, if that's any consolation. What, what's that? I enjoy this more than CNN. It's fun. This is fun. Do you hear that, Wolf Blitzer? Deal with that. <laughs> is he still even on CNN? I don't even watch the news. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's on. Oh, great. Okay, well, tell Wolf I said hi. Um, and uh, thanks a million, Paul. You can sign off if you want, and I'll uh, wrap up with my audience. Thank you, brother. Sounds good. All take right, take care. care. Um, all right, guys. Paul Offit. I mean, so all right. Let's debrief a little bit and uh, look at some comments here because I want to kind of. Uh, wind us down from being amped up from a live show with Paul, because I can tell by the comments, people get very emotional about this stuff. And yeah, I think we should have a right to be emotional about this stuff because it's been a slog. So in modern memory, we haven't had this kind of thing happen. In the setting of a polarized social media landscape where you know any, any person can have a platform, and can advocate for something. And then you throw in the politicization of this by both the left and the right, and even the center. And you have a toxic stew where it's very difficult to know who to trust. And the, you'll be looking for little dog whistles in what somebody says as to, oh, what are their politics? Or what's their bias? Or who's paying them? Or whatever it is. And you see that on the left and you see that on the right. And the truth is, if we can't come with good faith Assume we have a good faith actor who is, you know, really good at what they do and learn as much as we can, knowing everything is true but partial, nothing is complete truth, and educate ourselves, then what have we really come to, right? And the step one of that is assuming good faith, assuming that people are trying to do the best they can and they're coming with good intent. And I'll tell you, like, I've known Paul for a while now. He is one of the most sincere smart, enthusiastic guys. And yeah, he's going to have biases. And I've had people on the show who disagree with some of the things that Paul was advocating and even my own sort of, um, sort of, uh, elephant bias against mandates and things like that tends to click in for COVID, but it's good to hear ideas and 
sort of proposals that actually challenge your thinking, even if you think they're mainstream ideas. And the only reason they're mainstream ideas is that you watch the fricking news. Step one is probably stop that. <laughs> but it's hard because then where do you make sense? Where do you, how do you find sense making in a fractured information ecology? And I'm getting technical on this because it's kind of what I do is I'm in this information ecosystem, but it's very important. Now, when I use the terms alt-middle, that's what I'm talking about. It's not a political center. It's a way of looking at the world that does what I just described, all right? So that's what I'll advocate for you guys. On YouTube, we've got 1,200 odd people watching. On Facebook, we have 2,200 people watching. You guys are powerful. You're going out in the world and you're spreading information. So do it in a way that's thoughtful. And I'm not even gonna tell you what information is right, what information is wrong, et cetera. I'm gonna try to help us all develop the tools to critically think for ourselves. So if you like that, the usual calls to action, share the show, leave a comment, hit like. If you're on YouTube, subscribe and click the notification bell so you don't miss anything. Facebook, hit follow, leave a comment. And if you wanna support our efforts outside of mainstream media to have these conversations, then join our supporter tribe. And my favorite platform is Locals because I can't be canceled. I keep all the data, they don't touch it, there's no ads, and it's a beautiful community of alt-middle thinkers that love and respect each other, and it's about 13,000 people strong and growing. You can do the same thing on Facebook and YouTube, just go to my website for the links, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, um, and that's how you do it. Now, let's take a few more comments on the road out here. Linda says, I do agree that mis and disinformation are one of the worst threats to human survival. I, I think actually I would drill deeper and say it's our a fractured information ecology that is our threat, that we cannot find truth. We don't know what truth is. We have no reference point anymore for truth. It's kind of a postmodern fugue we're in where all viewpoints are equal. But we, anyone intuitively or scientifically knows that all viewpoints are not equal. Some are more true and less partial than others. And we need to seek those out and constantly try to enfold them into our understanding. Um, Jim Baker says on YouTube says, hey, it's criminal, quote, if doses are being thrown out, expired, with so much demand for vaccine worldwide and so much opportunity to protect the vulnerable, that's indeed sickening and disturbing. So this is the thing, right? And, and this is something Paul and I didn't get to go into deeply. If, if, if people are wasting vaccine in the US, can't we figure out a logistic way to get that to where it's needed? Because the US is not the center of the universe, right? This is a global pandemic. We're deeply interconnected and we're fragile as a result. So it used to be there was a degree of resilience because you know an individual country could kind of you know, handle its business. Now we're so dependent on things outside of our sphere that it's always been that way, but it's worse now in an interconnected world, which we would think is an ideal we wanna to strive to until something goes wrong with the Suez Canal and now you can't get your Amazon Prime delivery of you know, medicine, say, right? So because this has happened, now we need to figure out what's the new way of thinking and being in that world that turns that liability into a strength, new technologies, new social structures, new ways of thinking that will enfold that. I call it alt-middle. You can call it whatever you like. As long as we start pushing towards it, we have no choice except for extinction. It's really as clear as that. All right? Thank you so much for being with me in the middle of the day on a weekday. It means a lot to me. Um, we're going to keep doing episodes on 
how we improve ourselves through meditation, mindfulness, awakening, because we'll never emerge this new system without first going inward and seeing what's wrong with us. And but what's wrong with us is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. The pandemic really lit it up. All right, guys, I love you so much. Now I got to figure out how to end this show. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to click some buttons. I'm going to hope for the best. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.